for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Deconstructing psyops, propaganda, and mainstream media garbage. Connecting the dots. You're with Matt Arrett and Connecting the Dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back for the third hour of Connecting the Dots. I am very, very happy to be joined today by two very exceptional people who I've had the pleasure of chatting with now for a couple of years, uh, Paul and Liz Fitzgerald. Now, Paul and Liz are have a, a very, very unique bio. I'm going to just run through a couple of points that are that are of extra interest for me and, and I think for anybody watching is that these were the first American journalists to gain access to Afghanistan in 1981. They returned in 83, did... Uh, incredible news sto- new stories for CBS as well as ABC, um, despite a huge amount of resistance from certain forces that were busy trying to get another um, image of what Afghanistan was uh, embedded into the psyche of Americans, which Paul and Liz have, uh, have talked about enormously in their articles, their books, their many, many interviews and lectures. Um, and I, this is very important because they were the only... There was a total ban on Western journalists, a ban, and they were able to make to become the only trusted Western journalists to be presented to see things on the ground and to get a real picture of what was going on. Um, they've also written many books um, of which we have The Voice, the, Inv- the Invisible History of Afghanistan, The Untold Story, Crossing Zero after the AFPAC, uh, the AFPAC War at the uh, Turning Point of American Empire. Valediction, which I've read uh, Three Nights of Desmond and The Newest Resurrection. Today, um, I wanted to just chat a little bit with Paul and Liz about a few of their their um, insights, their backstory, and also a couple of articles that they've written, um, which will try to get as much content as possible, but we'll have links to the articles and the books in the description box under this video when it, uh, when it goes live um, later on. How are you guys doing today? Thank you so much for joining. I think we're doing pretty good. We're we're looking forward to this very much, Matt. Yeah, nice me to too. See you again, Matt. What's th- what's that, Paul? I said it's nice to see you again. It always is. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's you guys have been, you guys have been on the inside track on a lot of things, and I I I read through the 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 three um, essays that you guys sent me and uh, took a ton of notes. There, it's so all-encompassing. We're going to see what we can do. But I, I figured I would begin with a uh, a quote. Well, here, um, let's do it this way. The um, you brought up in the course of a of an article saying we are all CIA assets. What can be done? A personal story, and you bring about certain troubling um, discoveries you made over the years of the the efforts and the role of the CIA in social engineering and in manipulating people's emotions to uh, take something that was good humanity and uh, confuse it to to disrupt the flow of of, a, of what would be a peace movement that would be in resistance to the Vietnam War but despite that despite the 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 manipulation of things like MK Ultra and other things there has been still a certain a, a very important potent goodness that you guys participated in. And could you t- could you say a little something about what was both your discovery that was in, th- how did the, the CIA play a role in the process that you uh, participated in and what did you take out of that lesson? I think it's, uh, you know, we, we were both going through college and high school at the, at the peak of the Vietnam War era, uh, the, the protest movement and everything, late 1960s, 
I was at Boston University in 1969, and uh, the police were there almost every day. There was some kind of protest going on. Uh, there were all kinds of things happening uh, around us and whatnot. And at the end of my the, my very last day of my first semester at Boston University, 1969, I got a call from my faculty advisor. And he called me up and he said, I want you to come over to my apartment tonight. And I thought, that's unusual. Why your apartment? Why not your office? So anyway, I, I went and did it. And he said, um, he said, have you ever considered uh, working for your government? And I thought to myself, well, how strange. But I had no idea that that was part of what I was doing as a freshman at Boston University. So I later learned, of course, that Boston University was up to its ears and all kinds of uh, activities not just uh, protest activities. They, they were not organizing the protests. The protests were going on about some of the things apparently that were going on at BU that I had no idea were going on. At any rate, um, it also so happened that that very day, I had gone over to, uh, I had read in the Boston Globe that they were holding open auditions for the Boston production of the musical Hair. Now, Hair was, um, uh, you know, Hair was a, um, uh, landmark production at the time. And uh, it, it was in a number of different cities. It was in LA, it was in New York, it was in <clears throat> London and Paris and Tokyo. Uh, it was a worldwide phenomenon. And it was expressing the kind of summary of what had happened at Woodstock uh, a few months before. So uh, at any rate, uh, I, and I was a singer and I had been in lots of rock and roll groups and I'd been in the Boston Opera Company as a singer when I was, a young, when I was younger. So anyway, so I went over to the, I had gone over that morning, that very morning, I'd gone over to the Wilbur Theater and talked about auditions and signed up for an audition. So I told my faculty advisor, I said, you know, I said, I, I kind of, I, I would like to do this show if I could get into it, you know? So he said, oh, you don't want to do that. You've got, you know, there's lots more important things for you to do than, you know, than, than to be in something like that. But you can always tell people you did. So little by little, I came to realize our, our opening, I get in the show, I not only get in the show, they give me the lead. So here I am, I'm going back and forth to New York, I'm meeting all these people. Uh, one of the producers was closely related, to, uh, friends with uh, Peter, Paul and Mary. So I'm getting, I'm going off to parties at Peter, Paul and Mary's house. I'm, I'm 18 years old and it's like this whole new world is opening up to me. And uh, I did not know at the time that Peter Yarrow's father was running uh, the, uh, I, I believe it was the, um, uh, one of the government propaganda agencies, the US government propaganda agencies. Uh, and he was the central focus, he'd created it, okay, back in the 1950s. And uh, I thought to myself, Radio Free Europe, I think it was. And yeah. uh, I thought to myself, you know, this is, this is really getting very strange. But, you know, there was never any effort on their behalf to, to try to, you know, get us to, to uh, slant the story or slant the show, or we'd have Vietnam veterans coming up on the stage and giving us their medals to put up there because they were so, you know, they were proud of their service and they wanted people. We had, you know, comments from lots of people, a lot of military people were coming up to the show, coming into the show and, you know, help. we were helping them get through this terrible thing that they'd gone through. I'd like to add one quick mm, please. point in history to uh, set up, you know, Liz. <laughs> Um, actually, it turned out that that's where Paul and I met. And I always kind of considered that the show was really not only an education that we ultimately were able to look back at, you know, 
basically, you know, decades later and begin to understand this process of infiltration by the CIA into every aspect, every aspect right. of what we were engaged in. It really started at the entire educational system was really pulled in right. um, in 1953 with the activation of the cultural Cold War. So, but these were all things as we were living through it, we didn't know any of these things at all. Or that it was all coordinated right. somehow by, but, the, by the cultural, this thing called the cultural Cold War. But what we did notice was that there was something powerfully authentic about the hair experience. And, and doing it for a year really gave, and that Paul was the one who was in the show. I actually was not part of the show, but I had a lot of friends uh, that I knew who were in the show. So I was there a lot. And then, of course, when Paul and I started dating, I was there even more. But but the point being that the experience of feeling the sense of, of the reality of the anti-war movement, that we were a generation that was speaking uh, a, a truth that was being heard, that we were affecting things. And it certainly didn't happen overnight. You know, the process clearly it de developed over, over, you know, certainly from, you know, obviously the original engagement in Vietnam that culminated in 1975. But by the time, uh, this would have been 1970. So it was really kind of at the height of the growing anti-war movement. And it felt so real and powerful. And then to actually get the result that we thought we wanted. I mean, at that time, yeah. you have to understand that we thought that when they were ending the draft, it was like they were ending war. It, you know, yeah. We didn't think of it as you know turning our basically American boys into merc effectively mercenaries. But kids don't fact. realize it today. I mean, you had that hanging over your head from the time you were 16 years old until, you know, you until you either went in the army or got a deferment of some kind. And you were you could go to college for a couple of years, but you had to go to your local draft board and appeal to them to do yeah. that. So, so that you really, your life was yeah. not your own. So that was- Yeah, no, there was, there was definitely an atmosphere of terror that we take for granted. People who are, who are younger than you guys and didn't live through it, it's hard to imagine the type right. of feeling of terror that constantly was being lived in as your friends and relatives are coming in in body bags back into America. For a war that they didn't even understand why are we there um no i could imagine the yeah the, the but but that, so yeah sorry go on now keep keep the thought going i don't want to derail well, I, you I, I, the only point i wanted to make though in terms of this feeling and this sense of success was that when the entire process was complete <laughs> there was something missing that we weren't really sure what actually happened to the whole peace movement it seemed to just disappear at some level, but we weren't, again, we weren't conscious of it at the time. This took, we didn't actually really look back at this, you know, as researchers until 2016, because we had another motivation to want to go into uh, what that experience was about mm -hmm. and write about it. And it, 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 it was, it was shocking when we saw it was, this is um, actually, is this the one? Well, anyway, yeah, this is the Dave, Dave, yeah. David McGowan's book is the one that really gave us the basic information about the Laurel Canyon um, music industry and its creation. And a lot for of the, the for those just listening to this on the radio, uh, what we just saw was the cover of a book called Weird Scenes from Laurel Canyon, a highly important book, which uh, Paul and Liz uh, wrote some incredible articles about. But yeah, go on. 
yeah, so that so that as we were beginning to peel it away, and uh, I, I will make one point, that book and none of the books we've used for research mention specifically anything about hair being at all involved in this process of manipulation. We have no basis on which to say it definitely was a total CIA operation or how it was affected. We have no way of knowing. But what we did realize was that the, the, the actual process that, the, that, that had taken over guaranteed that the very essence of the peace movement would be completely removed. And one of the tactics we believe was actually part of it was turning it into a hippie drug-based la-la kind of thing. It was really not real. You know, peace, love, tra-la was the joke line. And so, you know, in having lived through it, we, we couldn't see anything like that. But at the end of the day, when you went into, uh, you know, into the 70s, and of course, this is where the transition for us happened in 1976. Jimmy Carter gets elected. It's on a peace platform. The uh, Vietnam War is supposed to be over. The devastation of the Vietnam War so impacted the, um, uh, you know, the bureaucracy that there was a huge push for detente and for uh, trying to develop better relations with the Soviet Union so we could move into more of a peaceful competition. Not to mention the ravages to the economy. Right, right, exactly. So this was supposed to be, and we were very involved at that time with the political process. So we were engaged with a lot of people who were in uh, the Democratic Party, especially at the time with Jimmy Carter. And it was unbelievable what happened. 1976, Jimmy Carter gets elected. And in 1979, you know, he inaugurated the great, you know, the idea of the greatest threat to peace since the Second World War following the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Well, at that moment, what Paul and I witnessed was the entire collapse of the idea of peaceful negotiations, the idea of detente being furthered. All the people that we had been working with, and we had done a documentary at that time about it with John Galbraith. So we were very involved with the people who were really trying very hard to get this going. And it was as if they all just, you know, they just walked out the door and said, it's over. The Soviets just blew it. What do you mean? What What are you talking about? The Soviet Union had crossed the border into a country that was so tiny and so unknown. People didn't even know where it was on the map. It was actually on their southern border. They had he, the Muslim republics uh, abutted Afghanistan. It had actually always been considered in the in sphere of influence of the Soviet Union because the U.S. had chosen Pakistan as its business partner in the region. And so uh, there just were a lot of questions in our minds saying, what just happened? How did mm. that vent go from what it appeared to be was some kind of, you know, it was serious, certainly 75,000 troops crossing the border was clearly serious, but somehow turning it into the greatest threat to peace since the Second World War was, you know, kind of... Well, once again, too, it seemed to come out of nowhere. Yes. Yeah, it yeah. just seemed to, I mean, I had a talk show on... Uh, in, in Boston, on uh, of all places, the Christian Broadcasting Network. I was there, not I was there, non-denominational, uh, equal time guy. I would go on with a half-hour show once a week, and I would you know bring on people that they would never bring on to the show, and we they would talk about things, and that's how we got our documentary up and running. They were running something put out by the American Security Council called the Salt Syndrome, 
And it was about the problem, the, uh, the inherent problem of negotiating anything with the Soviet Union, because the Soviets were evil, they were bad, and the, their station was running, it was Pat Robertson's station, he was running it three or four times a day. So it was like, I went to the general manager and I said, you know, look, I said, I'm your equal time guy, you know, and I said, you're running this documentary without, you know, without uh, Cowboys, uh, providing, yeah. providing a counterpoint. So anyway, so they said, all right, here, you know, here, go out and go and talk to some people, do something anyway. So we put together a documentary and I had enough political connections at that point from our political work that we'd done in 76 and 77. So to be able to get some some top level people and uh, John Galbraith and Paul Warnke, the man who'd negotiated the SALT II Treaty was quite willing to talk to us. So anyway, so uh, we put together a half an hour documentary called The Arms Race in the Economy, a delicate balance because nobody was thinking about the economy. And then all of a sudden the, the program aired, I think in December, and then all of a sudden January 1st, the, you know, the Soviets are in Afghanistan and it's all, it's all over, yeah. you know, peace yeah, is yeah. all over. Detente's over. Mm-hmm. All right, let's let's do this. I think you guys have set the stage so nicely for what I really want to go into, which will touch upon the emergence of this neocon weird virus that took over control of a lot of U.S. Uh, U.S. foreign policy, and a figure uh, named Robert Moss, who is also, I think, going to be a bridge in a, in a certain sense of these two worlds cultural warfare and geopolitical manipulations very nicely. So we'll uh, do that when we come back from a from a short break. This is TNT Radio.live. TNT's Darren Denslow. Yeah, I'm talking about the illness. Actually, that has done, has been doing the rounds. Not have we only seen a, uh, a mass influx of people waving their COVID tests online. Look, I got a red line. It's like, oh my God, people are testing. Or people, you know, trying to encourage others to wear their masks. Um, but there has been a talk of a dry cough. There have been doctors coming out saying we've seen loads of cases of that. Uh, have you been suffering from, you know, a bit of cough and flu or cold or COVID? Well, Darren, I, COVID. I, I just, I just did my eighth test, oh, and okay. um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get lines and lines. Why? Well, because work's coming back up, isn't it? Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk TNT. Military families often sacrifice precious time away from loved ones while serving our country. And for those with children, the separation can be especially difficult. We were worried that with him leaving, that she would lose those connections with her dad. Some of life's best moments happen between parents, children, and the pages of a good book. United Through Reading provides that connection. You can watch your mom or dad read a book to you, and it almost feels like they're really there. We ensure they remain a consistent, meaningful part of their children's lives, no matter the distance. Just seeing Jacob recognize Daddy again after a long time just melted my heart. And now, as we're facing greater isolation from our loved ones, United Through Reading is also available to veterans. Learn more about United Through Reading and download our free secure app at unitedthroughreading.org. We don't rock. rock. We talk. talk. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. All right, we're back for the second segment of the third hour with Paul and, Paul and Liz Fitzgerald. Um, we were, before going into the commercial break, describing a little bit of the um, what seems to be two separate things, but they're actually one thing with two aspects, which is, on the one hand, um, this the, the artificial intervention of the CIA and, and intelligence agencies in 
uh, cultural warfare that uh, shaped many of those who lived in the 1960s, um, who loved the music, who loved the drugs a little bit too much in some cases, and who fell prey to a lot of manipulation, but at the same time still acted as humans should act in times of injustice and did a lot to organize against this imperial war, while at the same time there was this other thing taking over the U.S. government over the dead bodies of great patriots like John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, many others, of which Paul and Liz got a first-hand seat and in some cases were able to write ex very extensive uh, exposés on ambassadors of the United States, uh, <laughs> different different officials around Ted Kennedy who were trying to, to restore some sense of sanity and didn't live to uh, accomplish it. That being said, this geopolitical thing, this uh, this what became, I guess, later on identified as the neocons, were emerging onto the scene and overseeing... Um, what became Islamic fundamentalism um, as as a manipulation in Afghanistan, but more broadly, and you were just touching on Pakistan playing a role in other things. Would you be able to say a little bit more now about how these two worlds were part of the same thing, maybe touching on the figure of Robert Moss, who you, you've spoken about? Well, Robert Moss is a, is a wonderful link between mm. this kind of esoteric world that we, you know, encountered as well as the uh, the intelligence angle uh, it seemed that you know that when it came to the it came to the Middle East and when it came to the Near East, when it came to Afghanistan, Pakistan, whatever, the United States really didn't have any experts in that area. I mean, they had people who kind of remotely understood it and you know dabbled with it periodically, but their real experience was the British experience, and they looked to the, they looked to Britain for their you know for their expertise. Britain had you know had run the uh, the empire out of India for a long time. And uh, they had, in it, and they were still interested in it. You know, they left Pakistan when they left the the empire, and they dissolved the uh, uh, they dissolved the kingdom, as it were. There, they um, they wound up uh, having a lot of uh, you leaving Pakistan is like a military base. I mean, the the joke was at the time was is that most countries have a military. Pakistan is a military that has a country. So uh, you know, it's a uh, and and it's true. I mean, and and that also goes for the Taliban. You know, Chuck Hogan, the director of the uh, Near East South Asia D division of the at the uh, uh, CIA, referred to them, told us personally. He said, you know, he said, uh, you know, the Taliban are a wholly owned subsidiary of Pakistani intelligence. So whatever mm -hmm. they do, whatever they say, you know, it's coming from the Commonwealth. It's coming from MI6. It's coming from the British intelligence angle on it. So uh, at this point, um, so that that was something that that uh, this guy Robert Moss was one of these intelligence people. He was Australian. He was Australian, but, but he, he was working with British intelligence. He was working with yeah. CIA. Yeah. yeah. So and he would be putting out, and he and, and Arno de Borsgrav wrote a book called The Spike, and uh, got the whole thing kicked off. Uh, that was that was kind of like the publicity thing for it, and it got a lot of publicity. It's really a what do they call it, Roman Eclef? Uh, type thing, and um, it was a thinly disguised story about a, a reporter who uh, really was working for the Russians instead, or the communists, and uh, in Vietnam, it was really an agent, it was but, was, Hirsch, it was, but, was, but was taking advantage of the weaknesses of the free press in the West, and you're pulling the wool over everyone's eyes in New York and Washington, and the American public, and so it was exposing the the ex, it was exposing the people who were trying to expose what was really going on. It was a counterintelligence yeah. operation. So at any rate, wow. so uh, 
That's mm-hmm. and that's exactly what we're seeing again today, right? Anybody oh. who's questioning uh, oh. CIA foreign foreign strategy or, or anything is all of a sudden a Russian disinformation agent. So this is yeah. this is like a blueprint laid out by by Moss and and Arnold yeah. back in uh, in the early seventies. Well, yeah. there there is actually a little background story that will help set up Moss as how significant he was, especially with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Because it was Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was President Carter's national security advisor, who really kicked off the whole infiltration of the total bureaucracy with the neocons with his tricking the Soviets into Afghanistan. Because when uh, the Team B, which was basically uh, uh, a challenge to uh, the traditional CIA Team A analysis, Team B was accepted by George Bush, who at the time was head of the CIA, to come in. These were outsiders who were really very well-known, powerful um, uh, neocons. That we now know that's what you know all of them are. And, yeah, Wolf uh, Witz and Paul Nitze, and yeah, that whole neocon yeah. Straussian crew. Yeah. yeah, right. But but they're all outsiders. But they were given permission to go in and analyze the CIA for Soviet threat. And what they came up with was a prophecy that predicted that the Soviet Union in 1975 is going to cross the border into some tiny little country and prove basically to the world their claim. They really want to just take over the world. So Brzezinski gets into office in 1976 with Carter. And the first thing he does in January when they start the administration is he starts fomenting um, the southern border of the Soviet Union to start the process of forcing the Soviets to have to cross the border into Afghanistan effectively. And so when it actually happened, okay, now this is 1970, January 1977. So here it happens in December of 1979. And President Carter, oh my goodness, the greatest threat to peace since the Second World War, when in fact, his national security advisor and known to him, was actually intentionally setting up what they ultimately called uh, the Soviet Union's Vietnam. They wanted to put them in a situation that would be similar to the way the U.S. was kind of trapped in Vietnam. So this became the basis on which uh, a, a propagandist like Robert Moss was feeding into. And he worked hand in glove with a guy like Brzezinski. They were all yeah. basically, you know, in right. on the propaganda. He would, he would put out papers, you know, in in terms of and publish things and and uh, through his connections in London, and uh, he would get things uh, in, into the press, and, you know, through Rupert Murdoch and people like that specifically, and uh, and so then Zbigniew Brzezinski would take that yeah. and then go around the White House and to all the NS national security people and say, see, here's my proof. Mm-hmm. I've got it in print. Here it is. The Russians are this. The Russians have intentions of doing this and that. And everything else. And so what was so interesting about the Team B was is that the Team B was composed essentially of all of these old Trotskyists who'd reformed, rebranded themselves as as uh, you know, as, as neoconservative, new kind of conservative. OK, mm-hmm. and this is what they've done over and over and over again. And they never go away. They implant themselves. They've got a little network of their own all through the government at this point, and they've influenced the U.S. military, and they've influenced the national security agencies, and we've got how many, 21 security agencies, and that's how you say, well, you know, how the whole Russiagate thing that just happened, how could that have happened? And uh, when it was finally investigated by the Senate Intelligence Committee, they said, 
there was nothing there about Trump as an example. Okay. Yeah. And the fact is, is that, you know, it wasn't that Trump wasn't talking to the Russians. I mean, he was the president after all for four years. He's supposed to do stuff like that. But they turned everything into a propaganda ploy. And so this is what we're living with right now because they kind of run out, run the string out, I think, at this point. But the thing about the Trotskyists that I wanted to point out was the fact that Trotsky's objective was, I mean, his 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 code was get control no matter what. And once you've got control, keep it. <laughs> but the but the real bottom line here for the neocons was that they had always been nipping at the you know, the sidelines, and they had an effect, but they weren't inside the system until Brzezinski pulled off the the, the, the causes belli that they have still living off of, which was the Soviets crossing the border into a, a little country that they could claim meant they were going to take over. And the trapping world. them in Afghanistan had been kicking around the CIA for, for years at that point. So it was- yeah, no, I think that what you guys are touching on as far as a nerve of of world history is so important for people to really think about and study and really process because especially the uh, the Trotsky element as far as like where does this neocon warmongering fanaticism arise? What's its origin? And, and it comes from a bunch of revolutionary permanent or permanent revolution Trotskyists. Yeah that couldn't keep power in russia got kicked out reorganized rebranded themselves put on new lipstick and all of a sudden came out as anti-soviet <laughs> uh cold warriors yeah. that then took over like a virus the republican party and i mean it's it's and exactly. then now increased the democratic party so it's it's, it's exactly. so important to appreciate it's more like a parasite i think right. parasite is more like yeah it. let's but go with parasite yeah i don't know what a virus right. is anymore either so okay let's right. go parasite right. sure <laughs> well, um yeah, yeah, the idea ahead. that this that this what, but that they they the point being that they actually have no loyalty except to yeah. control and permanent yeah. war. And I think we now under this is why we are in the the circumstances that we are in today. Yes. Um, on the issue of 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 Robert Moss, and and he's gonna I, he plays such a I was I've I've been I ordered a few of his books. I listened to a few of his his uh, interviews. He's such an, it's an interesting gateway that it gives you insight into, right? Um, because many people know of Moss as being a uh, a dream guru who's worked high level at Esalen. He's also, I mean, that that's how they think of him. as somebody who helps you explore <coughs> your dreams and other things. And he, he's like the spiritualist guru. Mm -hmm. Esalen, just as a quick side note, I, I've got this book I was reading. Um, I just finished it by uh, Jeffrey Kripal on the history of Esalen which has a mm -hmm. whole chapter on how Lawrence Rockefeller played a key role in funding the U.S. Soviet peace program starting in the 70s at mm -hmm. Esalen. So it was Esalen right. that was processing Yeltsin, Gorbachev, uh, Russian mystics coming in, working with the KGB to create this, this controlled disintegration of the Soviet Union, while at the same time, Esalen-connected operatives are working to um, manipulate um, the drug culture of the, of the hippies. At the same mm -hmm. time, you have people like Robert Moss, a cold warrior uh, himself right. was also interfacing, playing a, a, a controlled opposition game, providing this the 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 the, the social engineering and other things to bring in the neocon uh, Straussian apparatus. Very fascinating thing. Uh, how did you guys discover Robert Moss, and how does he play into this broader uh, picture? That act that's that's a fascinating little aspect of this. Um, Robert Moss we knew about because of our research into 
the Soviet issue. And, and because of the spike. And the sp we knew about the people who had basically yeah. been the propagandists, and he was one of the major ones, along with uh, Brian Crozier. And they brought all this to Washington. They actually activated um, an agency that many of the neocons, including Brzezinski, became a part of. So there was a lot of back and forth going on. But what happened was, in 2007, I believe it was, there was a magazine called Parade, which came with our Boston Globe. It was a national magazine. It was kind of well known that it, it was some, an insert. It was an insert, but it was kind of well known. It was in mag. It was in newspapers all across the country as a part of the Sunday paper. But it was kind of well known that it had ties to the agency. It had ties to the intelligence community. What the CIA wanted you to think. Right, right. Well, it turned out they had a story about Robert Moss being a dream guru. And what a wonderful guy. And we're was. like. What? <laughs> what happened to Robert Moss? That couldn't, couldn't be the same Robert Moss. Be, you know, not the one we Well, know. not only that, but then we obviously did an investigation and we found the website for Robert Moss, who's now a dream guru. And there wasn't one mention anywhere about his background as an intelligence operative. And we were, you know, a little bit surprised that, you know, that, I mean, obviously, and when then, you know, of course, now, if you go to Wikipedia and look up Robert Moss, and there's not one mention about any of that in Wikipedia. You've got to go to um, the wiki. What's the other one, Paul? Wiki Spooks. Wiki Spooks. Wiki Spooks has the real <laughs> Robert Moss. <laughs> but so this was part of our education and and seeing the infiltration again. Robert Moss not only was a high-level uh, propagandist, this guy, I, we have no doubt, going into the dream world, we're talking about militarized dreaming. We're talking about how th these groups um, uh, basically are literally infiltrating people at a, a level that most people have no idea that it can really happen. And we've all seen, you know, the hypnotist who turns one person who comes to the event into a chicken for a moment who claimed he couldn't be hypnotized. You know, they, they always make a joke about it. But and, and I guess people don't realize it's actually real that you don't know how they can really infiltrate you through this dream process. And Robert Moss is in there, apparently. Uh, we suspect this is, you know, what what we assume is going on. He's basically bringing people to his cause, and they become, you know, kind of, uh, you know, part of his team. All right. And um, one, of, you might remember in our article, there was a story about one woman who he clearly did not want on his team, and she suspected it was because she was too strong. She was too strong-willed, and he didn't want anybody like that on his team. Mm, yeah, that's good. No, I think what we'll do, I think this sets up again. I, I love the way that, that these little um, segments are, are, are uh, developing in a very organic way because this sets up, I think, the, the place we want to take this or I'd like to take this uh, when we come back from a commercial break dealing with the question of the dream factory that is the CIA sponsored Hollywood as a whole and mystical imperialism a little bit more in depth. So we're going to come back on TNTRadio.live with more with Paul and Liz Fitzgerald. The challenges our planet's animals are facing sometimes feel a bit heavy. Uh, animals haven't eaten in a day, two days, they haven't drank anything, they're cold, they're dehydrated. As soon as we started our descent, everywhere I could see was mud, just absolutely mud. So the country has been long for drought so long, it was like a tinderbox waiting to go up. Okay, very heavy. Each of us wants to be part of the solution, and we can be. Remember that there's good happening right now. 
at home. All right, we were able to get into your unit, and we have all four of your cats. So, uh... Okay. And around the world. For any animal in any disaster. So let's focus on that, right? Be part of the solution. One rescue at a time. Search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. The challenges our planet's animals are facing sometimes feel a bit heavy. The animals haven't eaten in a day, two days. They haven't drank anything. They're cold, they're dehydrated. As soon as we started our descent, everywhere I could see was mud. Just absolutely mud. The country has been long for drought so long. It was like a tinderbox waiting to go up. Okay, very heavy. Each of us wants to be part of the solution. And we can be. Remember that there's good happening right now. At home. All right, we were able to get into your unit and we have all four of your cats. So, uh... Okay. And around the world. For any animal in any disaster. So let's focus on that, right? Be part of the solution. One rescue at a time. Search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. Matt Arrett and connecting the dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back for the third segment of the third hour with Paul and Liz Fitzgerald. Um, we're tying together a bunch of moving parts into a higher unity increasingly and getting our minds into a place where we don't get myopic. I mean, there's a problem that I think a lot of people have when they're trying to ana- analyze uh, complex systems of which we are a part. You know, we've got cultural, economics, geopolitics, different categories. You could look at individually, but it's a, but you would be incompetent to do so because each part is shaped by a whole. And so there's there's this important uh, exercise that we're in, of of lateral thinking, of of learning how to think about um, many different things that are different aspects of one thing. Now we are dealing with uh, the culture, the arts, the the CIA, Hollywood. We were touching on the question of um, hypnotic um, techniques to pull people to 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 create altered states in both individuals and in groups. Um, we're talking about Robert Moss, somebody who was behind on the vanguard of the rise and takeover of big chunks of our establishment by this Trotskyist Straussian thing that wants absolute power and permanent war, permanent revolution. We're talking about all of these these different elements, uh, good people who didn't want World War III, who were iced out of decision-making processes in the 60s and 70s. Uh, for a variety of of, of things that uh, Paul and Liz were were watching as it was happening, and then thinking back on what what made this happen. So the the Robert Moss figure being somebody who's this dream guru, somebody who's high level grand strategy, or at least plays a very influential role in grand strategy. Um, and you guys were talking about um, the the idea of the power of dreams. And in one of your articles, forgetting which one, you make the point: Is the New Age movement being secretly penetrated? And are willing victims aware that they may at some future date be used as weapons? I think that that was a very powerful question to get people to subjectively introspect a bit and think about how, what are the subtle influences that might be shaping me that I haven't thought about yet? Um, Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate a little bit more on the question of Hollywood as a dream factory, as mass hypnosis techniques are are operating and how, what you meant by that statement in any way you see fit? (laughs) Okay. Okay. 
this whole thing really got kicked off in 1953 with this CIA memo called PSP 332. Hmm. And it was, and you can get it, the C, it's online, you can get it at the CIA website, uh, at least in a bridged version of it anyway. And, and uh, Frances Stoner Saunders talks about it in her book about the Cold War. Uh, it's, it's really quite a document because what it's doing is, is basically a po- it's proposing a, a kind of ideology for the West in order to inspire people through media, through culture, uh, uh, to oppose Marxism. It was, you know, the Marxism, Marxism was very popular after World War II. They saw the rise of fascism. You know, they saw what the fascism had done, what industrialized capital had resorted to in terms of destroying Europe and destroying the Soviet Union and fighting the United States. So everyone was kind of alive to the idea that something new needed to be done. And there was a lot of uh, favorability towards the Soviet Union. A lot of people in Europe, you know, the communist parties in Italy and Germany and, and France looked towards the Soviet Union as the future. So the CIA said, we have to do something about this. So they, they carte blanche created this idea and they supported a lot of magazines, a lot of articles. It was uh, even more than that. It actually was an infiltration into the educational system right. at the ground level. And that's why... And Paul was tapped at BU. These these right. kinds of tappings happen right. go starting in elementary school. You are already put on a track. You're already ID'd. The intelligence intelligence test that they give you is specifically to find certain kind of thinkers and then elevate them. So and your your career was rooted part, into you know just routed into right. a certain direction. And this was part of the whole idea of the cultural cold war. It came in at the ground level. So it, and that's why it is in everything. That's why what Robert Moss ended up doing with the dream world, okay, was a continuation of an already penetrated process. So I think at some level, we all have to just accept the fact that we've been inundated one way or another with, you know, with, with this process, okay. And in terms of the role that Hollywood plays, that's the ultimate role. Because Hollywood has the ability with a single film to literally establish a narrative. And that's what Hollywood did. I just want to make this one point to really make it clear. Okay. If your audience uh, out there, okay, if anyone has seen Charlie Wilson's war, and that's the only thing you know about Afghanistan, okay, you have to accept the fact that what you basically know is the propaganda story. That you've been totally propaganda. Totally. Okay. That's the role of Hollywood to create the narrative they want you to believe, period. Now, once in a while, there's a true narrative that comes through. It's not that everything is completely opposite of what it is. But in the case of Afghanistan, I think, you know, that one is a total propaganda piece. But it's, you know, it's what we try to do with Invisible History, Afghanistan's Untold Story, was thread the needle through Mm. the events that really did occur and these people who were put out there so that, you know, you could actually tell, you know, it was like giving you a scorecard to who the players were, you know, and, and letting people know what was really going on. And we did get that accepted by the establishment, which was which would which, which be we'd been up against since the 1980s. But not but not for the average American. It, it, it gets into right. the academic system right. to a degree. And there are people who know much more about real history in these in these systems. But you can see what's happening now where they reach a point where if you open your mouth, 
your your job is gone. Yeah, I mean, but we carried that story from the 1980s all the way until 2009 in City Lights books, finally got it published, okay? But it took that long to get that clarity out of one issue, and that was Afghanistan, and that was only because the United States had invaded it. But we can't compete no matter how accurate our book is with Charlie Wilson's war. Right. That's the right. power of Hollywood and the and the dream power, which is the subliminal level at which we all accept the, the story. It's it's yeah. more like a, it's a different frame of reference than when you're it's thinking. like a it's like a it's like a felt thought. It's not really something you could necessarily uh think think logically about too much. It's 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 yeah. also dealing with these deeper, yeah felt states that affect how we feel about information that is packaged or in a, in a certain framed way that we don't even know why we feel a certain way. Like, oh, yeah. I hear a Russian voice. It must be a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, they've even done it to the Muppets, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, you know, everything's Muppets would make movies every so often, you know, and I recall about four or five years ago, finding a Muppet, Muppets movie for my grandkids. And uh, and it was the the bad guys were now the Russians. Okay. Oh, no. Not like, Soviets, Russians. Not, yeah. It was like it all started. It's like you can tell when the shift occurs that what's going on in terms of the Dream Factory. Okay. The Dream Factory shifted over to anti Russian propaganda around 2007, 2008. And, uh, and, it, and it, it, it's in movies. You know, it's no longer the Nazis, it's the mm -hmm. Russians who are the bad guys. So, um, right. you know, you can track it. Once you know, once you have the scorecard and you say, oh, I know what that is. I know who's telling me that, you know, and that's where the neocons come in because they're a close knit unit and they work together in various ways, in various places. I mean, we got to, you know, we got to the one person you can get to in Hollywood. That was Oliver Stone. And uh, we went to him after his movie JFK came out because we're connected to the JFK story. And uh, and he said, um, I don't want JFK. I, I, we came out with a, a deep background story about JFK. He said, I, I don't want that. I've already done JFK. I want Afghanistan. What can you give me? So we gave him our story, you know, modified to, to suit the screen in Afghanistan and uh, tried working with him for a few years, but there was nobody else to work with. I mean, as soon as, as, soon as you know, we, we pulled away because we didn't like the direction he was taking with it, but he was the guy. Because, and he mm -hmm. was powerful enough. He could have got, you know, he could have got something done, clearly. But, uh, but you know, uh, there was nobody else who was interested. And even to this day, Hollywood still remains, you know, the, the, the existing narrative is Charlie Wilson's war. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, Hollywood is a... It, <sighs> It's a highly it's beyond compromised at this point. I mean, if there if there were outliers here or there throughout the years, I don't I, I don't think I can't see any anything that that's not tainted with some nefarious political intention behind mm -hmm. it at this point in terms of what's approved and turned into multi multi million dollar productions. That being said, um, we for our last little segment, I was hoping since you've just touched on I mean, you've t touched on Afghanistan. Um, we've we've uh, I mean. Yeah, you you know Oliver Stone is somebody who did a movie on on Alexander the Great, which all obviously overlaps a little bit with Afghanistan too. And you guys have been bringing up something known as, um, especially in your books on Valediction one and two, um, the idea of mystical imperialism. Um, I think that sort of ties things together a little pretty nicely uh, as a in, a in a basket here. Uh, for the last little uh, eight nine minute um, burst of time we have available to us, what is mystical imperialism? How does this package in or, or tied together? this story? 
Well, I, I've come up uh, with a very uh, straightforward way of, of understanding mystical imperialism. It, 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 what we're dealing with, we always talk about as empire and imperialism as expression of empire. But we, we the people are not aware of the fact that the actual power of empire is mystical power. That is where it comes from. And you said, but there's a place. Well, the place that's part of the dream power, the part of the imaginal realm. It is actually the ability to create a thought that then other people believe in and start acting on. You create a story. You are literally creating and using mystical power. All right. Well, imperialists are masters of using mystical power. And they've done such a good job of controlling that realm. They've convinced people that you can't use that realm because you, you, you know you're just a peon. You you've got to be a royal like me, or you've got to come from you know the right kind of understanding. And so the average person has literally given over. I mean, I think I remember hearing that in the Catholic Church, you're supposed to tell your dreams to your priest. You're not supposed to interpret them yourself. Well, why would they need to have, you know, kind of a, an idea of control of your dreams? It's all part of the that decommissioning process so that you don't use the power yourself. You literally give it to them. You give it to whatever. Uh, it, it doesn't matter which religion we're talking about. This process is a, is a fact of all religions that they are dealing in this mystical realm. And that's why when you look at the story between what was going on with Thomas Beckett, as an example, and Henry, the the Henry whole II. the second, the whole battle was between the power of the priesthood and that realm and the the and, and the physical realm that the king controlled. And the whole idea that there was a battle going on. So that's your that was the marriage, in fact, that the Church of England fulfilled by bringing the church and giving it to the royal, so there was no longer a priest in between effect. So the head of the, the head the of the head state of the was state also the head was, of the and so he controlled yeah. the spiritual realm, which is this. This is the realm we're talking, about, and that's where the imperial power comes from. But you can see that in the, the imperial power is it is it their use of it. You know, the average person is going not going to use it in this horrific way. We you know we we use it for the purpose of fulfilling our lives as as people as as i you know average people normal people they're not and they have become i think at this point it's almost like they they have they're so saturated in this power uh, that they can't do anything but misuse it at, at this point yeah and way, I, I, I i'm gonna have to have you guys talk about uh the the dynamics of the british israelite uh movement from uh the cabalists of Francesco Giorgi uh, onward at some future point uh, to scratch on this a little bit more in detail because um, I think it is super valuable. But Paul, uh, Paul, you were about to say something and I have a question about Afghanistan, so go ahead. I, when I mentioned that document, the CIA document, PSB, the stands for Psychological Strategy Board. That's what it was called back in the time, mm -hmm. back in the early 1950s. And that's what that they were strategized, the CIA was strategizing as to how to establish a cultural umbrella that everything could fit in. And so that's yeah. how you get the news, that's how you get plays, that's how you get theater, you get uh, motion pictures, and you get education. And it, so the children would be educated into this 
realm, if you want to call it that, of uh, controlled by the psychological strategy board. So it even tested. You know, I remember in fifth grade when they came in with the uh, the, uh, the psycho psychological testing corporation tests. Yeah. I was in fifth grade, and uh, and uh, you had to take and it was very unusual from what we'd experienced before. Uh, you you had to do them within a certain period of time. You were limited. It was like the it was like the L S SATs and LSATs, um, but it was not my first in, encounter with them, and it was very strictly done. And the teachers. The teachers in many cases didn't do it correctly. They weren't rigid enough in terms of the 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 discipline that they enhanced that they used when they uh, actually uh, gave you that. So they had to come back and do them again, enhanced the discipline. They had to do it exactly the way the psychological strategy board wanted it done. So you know, uh, it's it was all there. We just never really you know bit by bit. You see, you know, as I said, uh, you keep bumping into these things. Like when we went to this. Uh, Ted, when Ted, Ted, Ted Kennedy was running for president against Jimmy Carter in 1980, um, uh, somebody we, we were introduced to someone uh, from the campaign who was helping out with the campaign, and he'd run Bobby Kennedy's campaign, a guy by the name of Al Lowenstein. And see, so he said, you know, he said, since you're a Fitzgerald, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, since you're a Fitzgerald, and we are related distantly, and he said, uh, I can tell you this. He said, I've done a lot of research into Ted's, uh, into uh, uh, JFK's assassination as well as Bobby's assassination. But we've got to get Ted elected because we've the only people. I've got the people willing to come forward and tell us who the tell the public who those CIA sons of bitches were that did this. And he said, you know, but they need the protection of the presidency. They need Ted to be president in order to do it. And two weeks later, uh, a man walked into his office that he knew down in, in New York City and shot him about 11 times. OK, yeah. put the gun down and waited for the police to come. Mm -hmm. So talk about psychological strategy, uh, mm -hmm. you know, said Ted, needless to say, you know, did not did not win the nomination in 1980 mm -hmm. for president, even though he challenged him. And a lot of people wanted him to uh, to revive the Kennedy legend. But uh, so, you know, th there are so many things that have been working against, uh, you know, the American people, I would say, and, and, and public disclosure of some of the darker sides of, of what's actually running our government. And I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. I think it can't be hidden any longer. But it's so overwhelming because people have been so successfully shuttered out of so much. Right. It's hard for them to believe some of the things they're now having to accept. But I remember clearly when the pedophile uh, broke, uh, pedophile story broke on the Catholic Church in early 2000s, there was still awful lot of Catholics to the minute it happened, never could accept that right. it was real. So this is part of what we're dealing with is this literal denial and, and over, sense of overwhelm. So that's why I think what you're trying to do with this is so important that connecting the bigger dots so people can see a pattern and begin to understand how it happens. Yeah, definitely. No, and with, with real knowledge is a power that you don't have if you're ignorant of something, whether it's about yourself subjectively or about the world outside you, usually there's a connection of the two and ignorance comes no power to change it yourself or the, or, or the external. So I think what you guys are bringing together is really, really high value if people want to Read your books. I highly suggest uh, starting with Valediction, uh, two nights, uh, sorry, three nights, 
of Desmond. Um, Valediction Resurrection also available. Um, anything else you want to say in the last 15 seconds? You know, well, we've got a website called valedictions.net. We've got a lot of information on there that you can yeah. sort through and see.